Welcome to the final session of Kingdom 101 for this year. We want to welcome those who are listening in also on our SoundCloud. We say hi to you. Thanks for journeying with us for this whole year. After this, you will have a short break and we will return only next year. So don't miss us too much. Let's begin. Let's pray and then we will read the text. Lord Jesus, once again, Lord, you are the Word. You are the living Word. We don't want just to read something and miss you. We want to see you, we want to hear you, and we want to know you. And we thank you, you have given us the Holy Spirit to guide and to teach us in all these things. So please be with me and be with everyone else that we will learn and receive this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's read the text, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Allow me to start with some questions. And I want you to ponder these questions as we go through this evening's passage. What is Christianity for you? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be holy and separated? What is the church all about? What is the kingdom of God all about? What is the heartbeat of God? Just keep these questions in your heart as you consider the points as we go through this teaching. We will definitely revisit these questions again later. As Jesus passed on from there, verse 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Our first question as we begin this teaching, where is there? Where is there? As Jesus passed by from there. In the book of Matthew, you can sort of infer from the previous section, but Mark chapter 2 verse 13 speaks very clearly to us. The parallel passage in Mark chapter 2. Then he went out again by the sea. It is definitely by the sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus would have ministered often and frequently. That was his base. And his own home place was Capernaum, as we have already mentioned in the last teaching. Capernaum is that place by the sea, but what is strategic about Capernaum is that it was situated sort of in like a crossroad area, where to the north it would be a region that would be uh, looked after or run by Herod Philip, and to the south it would be Herod Antipas. And so once you have these two different tetrarchies, as you would understand, uh, because there's one is called tetrarch. The, the one who's ruling over a quarter of the land, you have uh, different people entering and leaving the different regions. Merchants would come from the north, go to the south, and then from the south, they'll go back up to the north. At the Sea of the Galilee, the fishermen will come in and they will also bring in their catch. So that place by the sea was very strategic. It was a great place for a tax office or a tax booth. And that was where Matthew was. He was there sitting in his tax office, and Jesus saw this man named Matthew, and this story is a little bit about this guy called Matthew. Now we understand Matthew, if you want to meet him, you can go back like 60 over teachings to the very first one entitled, Meet Matt. When we started the book of Matthew, we introduced him a little bit because we wanted to introduce not so much the person, we wanted to introduce the gospel of Matthew. 
But Matthew is only mentioned twice in the entire gospel. And in both mentions, he is uh, referred to as a text man. And I always smile when I do these teachings. It's always so coincidental that the subject that we are talking about is a subject that is current. Do you realize that our government has been talking about taxes? Yeah? And so you got to love the tax people. <laughs> Jesus loved Matthew. So Matthew was mentioned twice, once sitting at the tax office. The next time, he calls himself the tax collector in chapter 10 and verse 3. Now, what does a tax collector do? Matthew was actually serving King Herod Antipas. And he was collecting tariffs on the goods that were passing on that highway that I showed you just now. North to south and south to north. He would be considered like a, a civil servant of the Roman government. But he hired the locals as runners. And as we would learn later, many of these tax collectors tend to over-tax and over-collect. He's probably an educated man, wealthy through these means. He probably could speak various languages. He interacted with the Gentiles who would frequent and move through that place quite often. But Matthew is not his only name. In the book of Mark and Luke, he is referred to as Levi, son of Alphaeus. Levi. Does that name sound familiar to you? From the tribe of Levi, we get the Levites. Can you imagine this guy? He was born to be a Levitical priest, but he ends up as a tax collector. I mean, how far off can you go? He's named Levi, but suddenly we know him as Matthew. We ask, why two names? Well, it was common in those days to have a Jewish name as well as a Greek name. So it's possible that he was both known as Levi to his like, family mem members, and for trade, for Greek people, he would have to have this name called Matthew. But there is also another possibility which we see often in the Bible, is that he was Levi before, and later when he meets Jesus, then his name changes to this name called Matthew. And we see other examples like there was a Saul and later he became Paul. There was Abraham and God then changed his name to Abraham. Now, both of these are possibilities. But it makes no matter to us. It doesn't change the entire story here for us. Why is Matthew writing about himself in this section? We know that we've been going through chapters 8 and 9. And chapters 8 and 9 really is a, a summary of 10 miracle accounts. And in between, you see two discipleship footnotes. Why is this account put inside down here? Is this a discipleship footnote that Matthew intended? Well, I believe so, because there are these those two words, follow me. And it's about discipleship, and Jesus teaches His disciple in between all the miracles that He had performed. But at the same time, if you look at this, this is also another miracle account. And I call this the miracle of Matthew. Why is this a miracle? Man, even tax collectors can be saved by Jesus. That's a miracle. And I think Matthew might have just put himself down here to say, you look at all these miracles? Hello, I'm one of them. Uh, I, I'm not looking at the other miracles, thank you, those are good, but don't miss this one miracle. I mean, you can see healing, you can see all these things taking place, but this life that has changed, I call this the miracle of Matthew. If tax collectors can be saved by Jesus, oh, that's a wonderful, wonderful story. But what about tax collectors? Let's learn a little bit more about them. Mentioned nine times in the book of Matthew, these guys are agents of the Roman government. And they're usually locals. Why? Because the Roman rulers want to have the locals who understand the culture and the people and so they can move in between, uh, that, in the, within that culture to get the money that is needed. The worst thing is they are sanctioned usually by Jewish aristocrats with links to the Roman government. Praise God for politicians. Don't you just love them? Right? And so you have a, it's like a double whammy, right? The Jewish aristocrats are happy with the taxes. They are facilitating that. And then they sanction some of these people who are also locals. 
Now, already for the people, the taxes were high. But the tax collectors often overcharged for their own profit and for their own gain. So they were wealthy, but they were not just wealthy, they were corrupt. They were, they were merciless. They were like extortionists. They were like extortionists who resorted to oppression. They resorted to false intimidation and violence. How many of you remember the stories of gangs of old? Uh, where they say you must pay protection money. Uh, maybe tax collectors were likened to some of these people in their days. They are despised by the Jews. Why? Because they are considered like traitors. You're selling us out. You're, you're getting money not for yourself as well as for the Roman government. And so when someone is called a tax collector, it's a bad term. Even if you are not a tax collector and someone looks at you and says, yo, you like tax collector, that was like a swear word. It was like a curse. And the word tax collector is mentioned in the Bible almost with the same breath as sinners. You notice when they mention it's tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and harlots, prostitutes. Tax collectors with extortionists. They are like the Jewish mafia. Tax collectors are unjust. They are named with adulterers. You don't want to be known as a tax collector. And here we see this miracle of Matthew. The scum of the earth. <laughs> the, the one that's despised by everyone. Nobody wants to be friends with a tax collector. They will run far, far away. Of all the miracles recorded, Matthew records his own miracle. It's more than just the physical healing. It's more than just the stilling of the storm. It's more than just the casting out of a demon. It's the spiritual healing that Matthew is showing the people to say, look guys, it is about being saved by Jesus Christ. And if a tax collector can be saved, there is hope for so many different people. For Matthew, I believe to him, it was like the biggest miracle for the biggest sinner with the biggest need to be saved from himself. Tax collectors were wealthy, they were healthy probably, but they still needed forgiveness and salvation. And I love the way Matthew does it. He says, enlisting the apostles later on in Matthew chapter 10, we'll get there soon enough. Matthew describes himself as the tax collector. In other words, you look at these, these apostles, huh? all the other 11, huh? this name, this name, this name, and Matthew the tax collector. I mean, he describes himself. Uh, he's not ashamed of what he was. He openly says it because he's saying, can you see what I was? Can you? And if I have a place with Jesus, you can have a place with Jesus. The other person he describes, not very nice, like Judas, the one who betrayed him. And so Matthew might be saying, if you think he's better, I'm just one notch a little bit above him only. Don't you love his humility? I mean, you remember Paul, the apostle? He said, of all the apostles, I'm the least. I shouldn't even be named as an apostle. Of all the sinners I, of whom I am chief, I'm, I'm the big, big bad guy. And God, by His grace, brings me into the kingdom. Friends, this is a miracle. Never underestimate your salvation. Amen? If there is hope for Matthew, there's hope for anyone and for everyone. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to Matthew, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Many times I read these encounters and records of Jesus calling the disciples, right? Follow me. And then immediately they stand up and they leave everything. And I'm thinking to myself, Ayo, I'm so terrible. I need so many calls. I need so many invitations before I would leave even one small thing to follow Jesus. But as I'm growing and as I'm learning, I'm looking at this. I want to submit to you. I don't believe this was the first encounter with Jesus. I don't believe this was the first time that Matthew would have heard of this man called Jesus or seen this man called Jesus. Matthew would have been seated in a, or sighted in a very strategic open place. He's collecting money. His presence will be made known. Who was ministering around his office? Jesus. 
Do you think he would have heard of the miracles? Do you think he might have gone to peep at a little bit, look at some of the big actions that were happening in, in, uh, around Capernaum, right? Jesus was trending around Galilee. You mean Matthew didn't know him? You mean Matthew has never seen him? He has never heard of him? I don't think so. I think Matthew would have heard of Jesus, would have heard some of his teachings, gleaned quite a bit from all these things that he has heard why do I believe this to be true? This is consistent with Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. If you have missed that teaching, it's entitled, Follow. That was the account of Jesus calling the four fishermen. And we think immediately He calls them, they drop their net and leave their boats and then they go again. But you look at the accounts in John, uh, Mark, and Luke, you put them all together, you find those, that was not the first time they encountered Jesus. When Jesus said, follow me, that was not the first time. I believe it is the same with Matthew. And the same applies to us. How is it applicable for us? See, following Jesus begins the moment we put our faith in Him. Immediately. The moment you say, I believe in you, Jesus, you are saying, you are the king and I'm your subject. You are the man. I'm the one that's just going to tag along and follow you. I belong to you. That's what the word Christian means. Belonging to the Christ. You are the master and I am your disciple. Don't struggle with this. I know we don't feel qualified to be disciples, but nothing qualifies us other than His grace. And so the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you begin following. You cannot believe and not follow. It doesn't go together. If you believe, you must follow. But having said that, Jesus is always inviting us, always, always inviting us to a closer walk, to a deeper involvement with Him. And He can say to you, follow me. And you say, okay, I'm trying. And then after a while, follow me again. And then you Go one more lap with Him. Follow me. You know, and you're leaving things slowly, slowly. And there will come a one point when that conviction becomes so strong, you know that there's nothing in this world that will have any hold on you but to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And I believe that point came for Matthew that day. When Jesus looked at him past that text office and just said to him, Follow me. He arose and he followed him. Luke chapter 5, 28 says he left all, his entire text office. I don't know whether he picked up the money bags or not. He just, maybe just stepped up and he just said, okay, Jesus, this is it. I'm now going to follow you. That day, Matthew, Matthew made such a huge decision with that one step up to follow Jesus. From serving Caesar, he now serves King Jesus. How cool is that? From being a middleman for the Roman government, he became a priestly mediator now for the high priest. From keeping strict accounts for prophets, now he becomes a scribe to record the gospel of Matthew about Jesus Christ. From one who was despised, taking from others, he became a gift of God. That's what Matthew means. God's gift. From one who was taking from others, he's now given to others and for others. What a miracle. What a miracle. And I want to encourage you, if Jesus is saying to you, will you follow me? You may not come to that point yet of, of leaving everything. It's okay. Will you take one step forward? The invitation to, to draw closer is always there. Always there. Always there. And never, never put yourself down to say, I'm not good enough and so on. Just take that one step. Then take two steps. Then take three steps. And you find that one day you realize walking with Jesus is the best thing ever. And here comes the big one. He says, follow me. And that's where you say, I'm ready to drop everything for you. That was Matthew, the gift of God. Taking from people before. And now, He gives to people. And He's given for people. Interestingly, the first thing He gives, He throws a big party. The Bible records that after He arose and He followed Jesus. It says, and then it happened that there was a dinner in His place. We're not sure whether it is um, immediately that night or He took two days to organize it. Doesn't matter. He threw a party. He was going to give to people now. He was going to invite his friends. 
In the book of Matthew, he does not record a great party. How do we know it? Matthew only records Jesus sat at the table in the house. He doesn't even say his house. You have to look at Mark and Luke to draw that information. Mark chapter 2, verse 15 says, He was dining in Levi's house. Luke adds that it was a great feast. Now friends, how's that for humility? Right? Matthew just says Jesus was at the table. He was just eating. He didn't say, I threw a good big party. It was in my bungalow, in Queen Astrid Park, <laughs> District 10, no less. Right? He didn't say any of those things. He just said Jesus was at a table in the house. I've learned one thing, you know. Rich people uh, know how to throw good parties. Eh? They really can throw big parties. Have you, have you been to a party like that? I mean, wow, the food is cool. Yeah, it's great. They can have your, a private chef down there. They can have the best sashimi that's down there. Uh, endless floor of champagne and wine. Not that I drink. Rich people know how to throw great parties. He moved from an extortionist to an evangelist. He began to invite all his tax collector friends, and not only them, but other questionable characters from his hood, from his nearby, his circle of influence. He said, come, come, come. You've got to come and listen to this guy. Now, Jesus and his disciples were also invited, and I love this part about them. They gladly obliged. I have a question for you. Would you attend? Would you attend? Now you've got to think about this, right? We read the story and we say, wow, this is great, man. Jesus was there. And then someone else invites us to this kind of a party and we go, oh, yo. Let me give you an example. There was this guy who, when he came back to the Lord, I mean, he was backslidden for a while, but when the Lord touched him, drew him back with His love and with His grace, the next thing he did, he was, he was buying sponsorship tables, inviting people to evangelistic parties. I mean, if the Lord has touched you, you want to share this with some other people. Just recently, only I was sharing the Archipus Awakening message. Someone had read my book, and she attended a seminar that I conducted. After that, she was so excited. One or two weeks later, this person messages me. And what has come out of that is that she's saying, look, I believe in this message. I'm organizing a dinner. I need my friends and my families to hear the message of awakening. Will you come and share? And so I go over and I share. And it's, it's not a big party. It was a nice close group so that we are able to interact and to mingle. And it was a good dinner, by the way. And it was a very nice house. After that, I thought, okay, done. I've done my part. One month later, she calls me. She says, I've got another group of friends. Will you come for another dinner? Oh, dinner, sure can. I said, and she said, will you share again? I said, you have heard me share. I, I only share one message. She said, never mind. I've heard already, but they have not. She throws another dinner party, and I go again, and I share the same thing. You see, rich people know how to throw good parties. <laughs> but we need to learn how to throw these parties for Jesus also. We're not saying that we have got to lavish ourselves. No, we may not have those means. And some of you may have. Throw great parties for Jesus. Learn from this account. Learn from Matthew. The tax collectors, they came. The sinners came. They sat with Jesus and the disciples. Jesus was possibly the only rabbi who would hang out with them at such close proximity. Some of these may not have been like Matthew who had seen or heard Jesus before and they wanted to know more. I like how Mark recorded this. In chapter 2, verse 15, Mark didn't just say that the tax collectors and sinners had dinner with Jesus. He continued, he said, For there were many, and they followed Him. There's the same word, follow again. Now, if we understand follow is a code name or code word for disciple, or a disciple would be, or a very serious person, Jesus had tax collectors and sinners following Him. They were tailing him. They were listening. And then now they're like, oh, you are invited and I'm invited. And they were there. They were already attending his ministry meetings, maybe from away, you know, from, from some far distance because people don't like to see them. Maybe they were already listening to his podcast on iTunes. 
They know this Jesus. Some may not have known, but they were happy to be in the same room, in the same house, in the same room, at the same table with him. Matthew, the gift of God. And sometimes we have to learn that as we have received this gift from the Lord, we too must learn to give and be a gift to someone else. And so it was party time. But what's a party without some party poopers, right? So it's party pooping time. Enter the Pharisees. Actually, they didn't really enter. Okay, Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Not just the Pharisees. Mark and Luke would record scribes and Pharisees. So it was a whole bunch of them. So there are two possibilities. Maybe they saw from a distance outside. And all these guys going into this house, and Jesus, they know Jesus is there. And uh, they, I, they, I'm not going to go in. I mean, these are tax collectors and sinners. No way. Okay, I, I'm going to stand far away. I've got my binoculars. I'm spying on them. Or maybe it wasn't that night. There could have been a report of the event happening. And you, you know how word gets around? And you'll get to this kind of people. And they're like, oh man. They go to the disciples and they seek to clarify. Doesn't matter which one it is. They are just upset. Why does Jesus sit with or eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you notice at this point, there's no direct confrontation. They don't go to Jesus and say, why are you doing this? They actually skirt the issue. Either give Jesus face or they don't want to confront directly yet. As you go down the book of Matthew, you will see they'll get more upset with this whole situation and they'll go direct to Jesus as things escalate. What's their main objection? Their main objection is this. Why is Jesus not heeding the Word of God? Why is Jesus breaking God's commandments? You shouldn't be associating with these sinners, these scumbags, you know. You shouldn't be even seen uh, close to them at all. These are bad people. These are, and tax collectors are already sinners. There's another category called sinners. In the NIV, it's a inverted commas. And it's another bad term to mean irreligious Jews. These are your backsliders. These are the people who go to church and go outside and do bad things. So they call themselves God's people, but actually they don't behave like God's people. So these are, these are bad carnal Christians. You know? These are the bad guys. Jesus, you should have nothing to do with these guys. And, and maybe one of the passages in your mind would be Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not, not, underline not, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor does he stand in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You can almost imagine them carrying this entire scroll down and opening up and then pointing to the disciple and saying, you see that? You see that? You see that? Why does your teacher do these kind of things? And in their minds, they probably read this whole psalm, this one verse as, blessed is the man who doesn't hang out with the ungodly sinners and scornful, have nothing to do with them. You see, to them, holiness means not to be tainted by these dirty, sinful people. And for Jesus to have table fellowship with these, unthinkable. What kind of a rabbi are you? What kind of teacher are you? What kind of a holy man are you? And here we must insert one more question for us. Do you feel the same? Do you feel the same? What if you see a pastor or a Christian hanging out with some non-Christians in a place that might be questionable? What's the first thought that goes through your mind? Now, what's the first thing that, that comes in? Will you, oh, you know, rise up with righteous indignation? You've got to be honest, huh? What if you see some of these things happening? Your pastor, your cell leader, your senior pastor maybe. How would you respond? You see, through their own interpretation and their own religious lenses, they misunderstood Jesus in at least these few ways. Let me suggest this to you. The first thing was this. They were upset with the Roman rule. They were upset with Roman taxes. And so they were upset with tax collectors. And because they were upset with these, they feel Jesus, you should feel the same as us. Right? You're betraying us. 
And if you sit with them, it means you agree with the taxes. Everything is okay, you know. You're endorsing them. Jesus was never against taxes. Let's be clear first, right? He had no problems with taxes. He will be asked later on, is it lawful to pay taxes? And he says, look, if it's Caesar's, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And if it's God, then give it to God. He's got no problem with that, right? Peter has to pay the tax and he fish, pulls up a fish. How many of you like that? Huh? Pull up a fish, have the tax money there, uh, and uh, immediately it is uh, telegraphic transfer to the authorities and you have sashimi some more. <laughs> Jesus said nothing wrong with taxes. The second thing that they misunderstood Jesus is that, well, they thought that because of that, Jesus supported their third trade and their practices, the way that they're overtaxing. You're endorsing them. Jesus was not. In his teachings, Jesus himself called out the wrongful practices of the tax collectors. He himself used the same derogatory pairing of tax collectors and sinners. It's all in Jesus' teaching. So he's not endorsing their wrongful practices. In Luke, you will see John the Baptist, when the tax collectors came out to the Jordan also to hear the message of repentance, the tax collectors asked John before getting baptized, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. In other words, you can collect, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with this trade or with occupation. The problem is that you have gone too far to an extreme, and that's wrong, and you must repent of that, you see? So Jesus, together with John the Baptist, He was not endorsing their practices at all. He called them out. The third thing, they presumed that Jesus supported them in their decadent lifestyles. Why? Because you're having this party, right? Good Christian people should not attend parties. Full stop. That was their theology. But Jesus was not joining them in their lifestyle or in their beliefs. Just because He knows how to have a good time doesn't mean that He's engaged in the excesses of a, of a high life. They misunderstood Jesus entirely. Although Jesus later on would be accused of being a, a glutton and a, and a wine-bibber, Jesus didn't get sloshed. He didn't sleep with women. Jesus did none of those things. But immediately they presumed that that would have been His endorsement of their lifestyles. The fourth thing is that they presumed Jesus would be tainted and defiled by this unholy bunch. That's their theology, right? If you touch something that's dirty, then you are dirty. If you touch something that's unclean, then you are unclean. Then you are, you are to be pure, you are to be undefiled. But they missed the picture again. From the text we realize, Jesus was not being influenced by them. But instead, He was influencing them with the kingdom of God. They were following Him. He was not following them. And so the question you've got to ask ourselves and yourself is, if you hobnob with some of these characters, are you more prone to being influenced by them? Or do you think they will be more influenced by you? Now you've got to know yourself and you've got to know who you are in Christ. And we've got to know who we are collectively so that we can help one another and keep each other on the right track. But the sad thing many times is that when Christians get into company like that, we are the ones that get sweet more easily than they are influenced by who we are as God's kingdom people. See, they totally misunderstood Jesus. And they presumed things upon Him. So here's another question for us. Do we presume the same of others? When Jesus heard it, He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17. Luke chapter 5, 31 and 32 records exactly the same phrases. And here Jesus is replying. Jesus is standing up for His disciples. Jesus is saying, look, don't disturb my guys. I'm the one. Let me teach you. Let me say this is the right thing for you. 
And he gives from these two verses in Mark and Luke, these two references in Mark and Luke, another connection between physical healing and spiritual healing. There was what we already covered the last time, right? They bring in this paralytic who needs a physical healing, but Jesus declares, you, your sins are forgiven. So there's a connection between well and sick, followed by righteous and sinners. Literally, what he's saying is this. If you are a sinner, you need spiritual healing from the great physician himself. He comes and he says, my focus, this is my main focus. I'm coming to call and to invite sinners. And that's what I'm doing. When I'm hanging out with these people, I'm inviting them into the kingdom of God. I'm calling them. That's my purpose. Don't you get it? Conversely, if you are righteous, or if you think you are, then you will think that you will have no need for any healing. Now, sometimes you read this verse and you think, oh, he's saying that the Pharisees are righteous. No. He was not saying to the Pharisees that they were righteous. Although they did consider themselves to be extremely righteous. Remember in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, there's a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee was saying, oh, you know, look at how good I am. Look at how, not, not like this guy next to me. And a tax collector is saying, oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, have mercy on me. And then Jesus says, which one do you think was justified, right? The Pharisees thought that they were, they were really righteous, number one. Jesus was not saying that. And as much as they tried to be righteous through the keeping of the law, through all of these rituals, Jesus actually said, you've got to exceed their righteousness. You can keep the letter of the law, but you miss the spirit of the law. You miss what righteousness is all about. You cannot keep the law and think that you are righteous. You need to keep it by the Spirit of the law. And later on in Romans, Paul had to be Paul. God has a sense of humor. The Pharisee of Pharisees had to be Paul. He will later declare, Hello, there is none righteous, not one. Of all the Pharisees, I know it. I was the most zealous. I was like the, the best of the best if you want to grade me. And I'm telling you, I cannot make it. And I'm so thankful for Jesus. One line by Jesus, loaded. If the Pharisees would have ears to hear, they would have repented there and then. But they would hear it the other way. Lah. They get upset. Lo. Huh? They would say, who, hello, who are you calling sinner? I'm very righteous. I'm okay, you know. And that's why in Matthew, Matthew inserts a critical Old Testament quotation. Right in between that parallel, that connection, Jesus says, you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, Matthew is full of Old Testament quotations because Matthew is saying to the people of God, Look, there's nothing new. We are just bringing from old into the new. You couldn't understand it because you didn't have anyone to explain this fully to you. Now the king comes. He's explaining the law of the king and his kingdom ways to you. And the king is saying this, Hello, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And whenever you see an Old Testament in the New Testament, go back to that scripture and understand the context. God was speaking to Israel through the prophet Hosea. The tradition and the rituals of Israel had become blockages to true spirituality. The entire religious institution had become cold, harsh, critical, judgmental. They have perfected the forms and the functions, but they have missed the kingdom of God. And so in the same way, Jesus was using this, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, to expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And this Jewish argument, this rabbinic style, he's saying, I prefer X more than Y. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's not saying that I only want mercy, I don't want the sacrifice. No, he's not saying that. It's a rabbinic way and a Jewish idiomic way of saying Sacrifices are good, but if you miss the mercy, you miss everything. 
Learning about the kingdom is good, but if you miss the spirit of the king, you miss everything. Burnt offerings are good, but if you miss the knowing of God and the heartbeat of God, you miss everything. In today's context, I believe the Lord would say to us, I desire mercy and not Bible study. You understand? It's not that Bible study is bad. It's good. Thank you for being here, I keep saying. But if you come and study the Bible and you miss the mercy of God, then you miss the entire heartbeat of who God is. I desire repentance and not just remorse. Now, is remorse good? Yeah, I feel bad. I feel lousy about what we have done. Today, there's a teaching that tells you you should never feel lousy at all. No, we should cry when we hurt God and we upset God. But if you only stay at remorse and there's no repentance, we miss the whole picture. I desire deep devotion and not just nice worship songs. I mean, sing the songs, cry if you want. But if there's no devotion to the Lord, again, you have missed the whole picture. I desire obedience and not altar calls. Altar calls are good. But if it's every altar call you come up and you never obey the Lord, then you have missed the whole thing. I desire kingdom assignments and not Christian activities. Now, are Christian activities good? Yes, they're good. But if you miss what God wants you to do, then you miss again the spirit of what the king wants. I desire fruitfulness and not busyness. Are you catching this picture? And we have to ask ourselves, have we missed it ourselves? Have we missed the kingdom of God? Have we missed the whole picture also? The Pharisees missed it, big time. And that's why Jesus said this to them, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. This one phrase, go and learn what this means, is rabbinic talk. It's how a rabbi or a master or a teacher would tell his student without giving him the answer and say, you know this passage? Now you go and learn what this means. Now go wrestle with this. Go figure this out. Go study some more. Go and fast a little bit more. Go and pray a little bit more. Go dialogue a little bit more. Go research a little bit more because I think you have not caught it yet. Wow, what a slap on the face. Oh, that was painful, right? Can you imagine if you are a Pharisee? You are a rabbi. You are a teacher. People are calling you all rabbi, all master. You know, and, and here is Jesus that you think shouldn't even be here in this place. Looks at you and say, Hey, hello. You go and learn now. Can you go back to primary school? You go back to square one, can Like Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you are a teacher, you are a leader of the people, and you don't know what it means to be born again? How can you understand spiritual things, kingdom things? Go and learn what this means. Go wrestle with it a little bit more. Before I point my finger, and I've already pointed my finger at the Pharisees, can I confess to you, I felt a slap on my own face. As I prepared for this teaching, as I studied, I looked at this, and I, I think back, and as someone in a full-time ministry, it's so easy to miss the big picture. It's so easy to get caught in the, in the details and the events and the things to organize and the logistics of stuff, and we miss a kingdom heartbeat. I can miss the, the, what is important to God. As a teacher who desires not to compromise the Word of God, I can get caught in the hermeneutics, the word study, you know what this means, how can I divide a word rightly, and I miss the spirit of what this word is. And I said, Lord, help me. Remind me once more. Because if not for your love, if not for your mercy, where would we be? You and I won't even be seated here, man. And so let's not look at the Pharisees only. We have to ask ourselves, do we need to go and learn what this means too? Do we need to go back to the drawing board a little bit? Do we need to go back into God's presence? Do we need to rediscover the wonder of that love and that mercy? What is Christianity to you, I asked you? What is Christianity for you? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be holy and separated? What's the church all about? What is the kingdom of God all about? What is the heartbeat of God? Have we been stuck in our own ivory towers? 
Do we consider ourselves as righteous and despise others who we consider as worse sinners than us? See, today we frown at the injustice of the world. We look at prostitution, we look at human trafficking, we look at the LGBT, we look at the gender confusion, the same-sex marriages issues and all that, and we go, are you, you know, are you so terrible? No, are you so demonic, so bad, all that? But sometimes we don't realize that in one clean sweep, now we're not endorsing those things. I'm not saying those things are right. But in one clean sweep, without us realizing it, we condemn the tax collectors. We condemn the prostitutes. We condemn the gender confused. We condemn the same-sex attracted. Do we do that? And we can't separate the two. I said, Lord, open our eyes that we can see. And if we have been critical, Lord, show us when we go and learn. It's not going and learn now. Now Jesus is saying, will you come and learn? Learn from me. Learn from me. Jesus says, come and learn from me. See, as much as we frown on these injustices, do we ask our king what our parts might be? Or do we presume that our kingdom assignment is just to heckle and to pronounce fire and brimstone without offering the hope of salvation and deliverance? Go and learn what this means. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And when others choose to extend love, grace, and mercy, do we find ourselves responding like the Pharisees, accusing these of having defected to the other side, that they have compromised the kingdom of God? I'll be the first to admit that sometimes that line is not so clear to to define, is it not? It's not so clear to discern, is it? Am I correct? That's why you need to stay close with the king, you understand? You need to understand the heartbeat of the king, what the kingdom is all about. And we ourselves, if the Lord is just tugging within our hearts, we need to repent. We need to repent because we see ourselves as more righteous than others. And we see others as as bigger sinners than ourselves. If you're struggling to answer the questions that I'm challenging you with, once again, it's time to go and learn what it means. And the best person to learn it from is none other than Jesus, our King. Read the gospel with fresh eyes. Don't let it become something that's stale, that you're familiar and say, yeah, 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 I know, I know. The Pharisees are the the bad people. No, I am that Pharisee down there and I need help. And how wonderful that Jesus says, I came to call the sinners to repentance. And if Matthew can be saved, there's hope for me. And there's hope for you. So consider the questions again. What is Christianity to you? What is Christianity for you? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be holy and separated? What is the church all about? What is the kingdom of God all about? What is the heartbeat of God? This has been a passage about Matthew, but it is so much more than just Matthew. In Matthew, we see a tax collector, and if if the tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst and can be saved to follow Jesus, you and I, we have hope and we can follow Jesus. It's more than just about Matthew. It's beyond him. It's about the grace and the mercy that Matthew experienced. Don't read this passage and miss the mercy of God. Don't read this and listen to this and miss the the loving kindness of God, the love that endures forever for you, also for me. This is the mercy. This is what it is. This passage also cautions us against the pride and the deception of religious and ritualistic practices. Now, not that these are bad in itself, but it can cause us to miss what is truly spiritual and what is important. I hope you realize we can be like the Pharisees without realizing it. We can proclaim righteousness as if we are the only ones who deserve it and others don't. We can know so much and yet still need to go and learn what it means. And so let us learn from Jesus and from Matthew. His experience with Jesus outflowed into his circle of influence. In Archippus' talk is 
it outflowed into his area of operation. He hung out with the old friends. And he was not pulled back into the old ways. Instead, his friends followed him to follow Jesus. And I love this last part I'm going to share with you. These did not just believe so that they would go to heaven. May we heed the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31. And we will close with this. These are the words of our Lord. Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. They entered the kingdom of God. Now, why did they do that? How did they do that? I leave you to go back, go and learn what this means. But the hint is this. It's about doing the will of the Father. And Jesus concludes by saying, tax collectors will follow me and do the will of the Father. Harlots will follow me and do the will of the Father and they will enter the kingdom of God. But those who say they are people of the kingdom of God, but they do not obey and they don't do the Father's will and they don't understand the kingdom's assignment, we are on dangerous ground, I say. Listen to the teachings of Jesus. Go back to the Sermon of the Mount. Every teaching so far has been consistent. Go and learn what this means. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We're humbled, Lord. And we come, I speak for myself first, Lord. I come in repentance. I come and I say I'm sorry and I ask your forgiveness. It is so easy to do church. It is so easy to talk Christian. It's so easy to say what needs to be done, what should be done, what could be done. But Lord, help us, Lord, that we may obey, that we may understand your heartbeat and what the kingdom of God is. May we learn from Matthew. May we learn from Jesus that as we follow Him, we will see the way He lived and the way He extended mercy and grace and invited all. He never compromised. Not one moment. He never compromised. And so, Lord, will You show us what it means to live with that tension and to understand so that we too, as we have received the glorious gift of Jesus, may ourselves be gifts of God to others, that they may know Jesus too. And so we bless You and thank You. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.